Welcome, travellers. And in the words of Muddy Waters, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything. Everything's going to be all right this morning. Oh, yeah. Woo! You're listening to Soundwave, the shoreline of infinity science fiction podcast, brought to you every two weeks directly here from StellarCon Later. Thank you to everyone who provided such kind feedback on episode one. Hopefully we'll meet your approval on this episode. And with the audio treats we've got in store, I think we may even exceed it. If you heard the pilot or episode one or even the opening one minute, 15 seconds of this podcast, you'll be familiar with the distinctive sound of Alex Storer, a.k.a. the Light Dreams music. And he'll actually be the soundtrack to Soundwave going forward. So I thought it only prudent you get to know the Stellar Later Guild's TuneTech Prime ASAFP. Sonic Space opened the hailing frequencies to chat with a musician and artist who was well accomplished even before Soundwave was a twinkle in Overtech Knowles and my eye. Special thanks to the receptor interrolists of the Stellarkin Later Guild, whose skills managed to dampen some of the interference caused by a passing Newman-classed vessel. But, you know, the sound quality isn't absolutely crystal clear, as will happen with long-range frequency communications. And as we're spotlighting the work of Alex, the musical interludes will be given more breathing room than normal to fully appreciate them. In fact, they may not even be the musical interludes you're used to hearing. We've also got some punchy time travel pros to punctuate the music that I think work to both complement in tone and counterpoint in format. We've got Time Machine Story, written by Richmond A. Clements and narrated by Jonathan Whiteside. But first, we'll hear the song Back Into the Light, alternative mix by Alex Storer, who we're featuring heavily on this episode. And then, the poem Back in Time by Jane Yolen performed by Danielle Farrow. I literally just typed at before Danielle's name when doing this script. Maybe it's a sign I need to get off social media. Or maybe it's one of my backup personalities reminding me to remind you that if you want to talk to any of the Soundwave crew on Twitter, their Twitter handles and links are in the show notes, such as mine, at RJ Bailey. Why did I get a special mention? Narcissism.
Back in Time by Jane Yolen Read by Danielle Farrow Back to a time when only the stones howled. Louise Erdrich, The Master Butcher's Singing Club So we got out of our time machine, set for the beginning of the world. The whir of the fans and dials finally ceasing, we opened the locks and stepped out, expecting a brand new, quiet earth, the only sound to be ferns uncurling, the kind of green voice that whispers, not like the noise of humans who are never still. I placed my foot on the nearest stone, like any explorer ready to claim the land, the stone began to howl as if it knew the future could predict pillage, spillage, the spoils of war, could foresee stones broken, fracked, fractured, fallen. It gave voice to the silence, made loud protests to the universe. I withdrew my foot as if it had been a complaint, and we took off again. Perhaps the future was where we needed to be, not the past with its howling stones, with its fierce seers, with its knowledge.
Before the poem, we heard Back Into The Light, alternative mix from the Back Into The Light album, and the poem itself was Back In Time by Jane Yolen, narrated by the always excellent Danielle Farrow. And the music you heard literally just a moment ago was Nocturnal from the album Prototype. I thought I'd, I'd pair the two as the music seemed the perfect soundtrack to a moment of profound science fiction realisation. Prototype is also the album the Soundwave theme comes from, which is a shortened version of the appropriately named track Vanguard. And I mean appropriately because Soundwave is leading the way in new science fiction developments and ideas, not because I'm the leader of a sinister sex cult masquerading as a multi-level marketing company, Pyramid Scheme that already seems pretty brainwashy from the outset. Anyway, I get distracted. We're going to hear some more from Alex Stora now as we commence this episode Sonic Space, our slot where I chat with some of the most interesting people in and around the speculative fiction sphere. If you're one of our Patreon subscribers, then you might already have even heard it, in which case, feel free to skip ahead 26 minutes and 42 seconds after this next block of music so you can hear the closing track of Sonic Space and then the timelines eventually will converge once again. We touch upon a couple of songs uh, during this particular interview, Decay from the album Remnants from a Lost Time and Construct from Infinity of Space, so it only seemed appropriate we play those for you as well. One before and one after this episode's Sonic Space. If you want, you can be a Patreon member, become part of the Stellacon Later Guild, and sign up to be of Receptor in Terrorist rank, where you can then hear the extended version of this interview right now, which, as opposed to 26 minutes and 42 seconds, is a whopping hour plus in length. We talk about all kinds of good stuff. Anyway, decay away.
Hello, you're listening to RJ Bailey's Sonic Space here on Shoreline of Infinity's Soundwave podcast. I am chatting to Alex Storer, which I've actually had to go into two pages when I was writing down some kind of introduction. You can hear me flicking uh, the pages around as proof. Uh, He makes music under the name The Light Dreams with albums such as Prototype, Crossover, Back Into the Light, Tracers, Remnants from a Lost Time, which I particularly like uh, because I like the generation. I like how that one was designed, well, originally to be something to accompany walks through nature, which I do quite a lot. Um, Although I won't do it at night time because then it goes to a track called Decay, which is really scary. Uh, and then Legacy, Time Shift, Sentient City, Mechanical Drive, Into the Light. He's also a science fiction and fantasy artist. Um, so if you would like a cheeky dragon now and then, there is a castle and a dragon uh, on the website for you to look at as well. He also has done book covers. Uh, he's a designer for Gleanings, Facade and Charade by Alice Sabo. The Wages of Sin by Zoe Sumra. Warrior Errant by Harry Elliott, which, going by the title alone, sounds like my kind of book. Freedom's Prisoners by Katrina Mountfort. And The Sleeping Dragon by Johnny Nexus. And I'm going to go out on the limb here and say that's not his real name. Honorary Musician as well for the Initiative for Interstellar Studies, which is just so much, so much, sir. Um, I first heard your music when uh, a mutual friend of ours, Noel, uh, Noel Chidwick, who is the um, editor-in-chief and overlord of Sean and Infinity, lent me your album Crossover. Uh, and in true science fiction style, uh, I realized I could only listen to it in the car because I no longer had anything in my house capable of playing compact discs. Um, so it made for very good driving music as well. Um, And then I've gone on to listen to a few of the other albums, such as Prototypes and Remnants from A Lost Time. Um, Where did this, where did your, your music is very sci-fi. Your art is obviously overtly sci-fi. You have elements of uh, Vangelis in there to my ear. Um, Where did your love of combining science fiction and artwork, rather than just taking it in, your love of creating science fiction artwork come from? Hello. Well, um, I think it's always been there. You know, it's uh, listing all those things you've just said to me. I don't think anyone's ever read them back at me before. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, there's quite a few things happened in the last few years. I never intended to be a musician. I still don't like calling myself a musician because I'm self-taught. You know, I just kind of fell into place. Um, I've always been a science fiction fan, right as far back as as I can remember. Uh, It's like earlier we were talking about Peter Davison's Doctor Who era. Some of my earliest memories from when I was little in the early 80s, watching watching his stories um, and then seeing, I remember seeing Return of the Jedi and Tron at the cinema. I just always loved science fiction, and I was always drawing as a kid. I was always making comics from what I'd been watching on TV, uh, you know, your cult stuff of the 80s like He-Man and Thundercats, um, and also the Tripods, Lake 7. Um, but I was an absolute Doctor Who obsessive by the time I was about six or seven years old. Um, 
teachers would try and teach me things at school and I'd be thinking about darts. <laughs> Not much has changed. But, uh, you know, I got to start my career in the late 90s as a graphic designer and uh, happily trundled along doing that for, uh, for a while. And it was only, I think... Well, actually, before I get to the, the artwork side, the music, I'm a big music fan. Um, Peter Gabriel, David Bowie, Jean-Michel Jarre, uh, John Fox, Simple Minds, Gary Newman, whole Vangelis, Mike Oldfield, a whole range of that, that sort of golden age of artists that emerged in the 70s that redefined rock and electronic music. Um I really love all that sort of stuff. And uh, I think just through years and years of being a music fan, I, I remember in the, it was maybe, uh, John Fox had just released an album called The Pleasures of Electricity back in 2001, which I loved. And uh, it's one of those albums that made me want to make music. And I thought, hang on, I can't. Well, why can't I? Because I've never tried. So I went into the sound control in Sheffield and I got them to price me up a MIDI setup and some software and realised that I was going to have to take out a small loan to do anything of the sort. So I put that idea on hold for a few years. Um, and then I bought an iMac in 2006, which came with GarageBand. Didn't buy it for GarageBand, didn't know it was going to be on there. But uh, yeah, I. I fired it up and thought, you know what, this is exactly what I've always wanted. I dabbled way back in 97 on my Amiga with some sample-based uh, music software. So the seed was sort of sown then, but this, uh, when I first discovered that software, it was like exactly what I wanted to do. Um, so I just, you know, I spent my spare time fiddling around with that. I made hundreds of tracks, um, some of which I put on the internet at the time just to get people's opinions and that sort of thing. But it was a, an ongoing, constant experiment um, to see what I could do. And over time, that sort of evolved into something that actually worked and I thought was listenable beyond the confines of my own ears. <laughs> um, but the, the influence was inevitable because it was always going to be whatever I was watching or reading. Doctor Who, of course, has uh, known, well, in the old you know, pre pre New Who was known for its um, electronic scores, wasn't it? I take it that was a big influence on you. And even if people listen to the big Finnish stuff now, I listen to the audio dramas, they'll hear the old style electronic scores to to Doctor Who rather than the bombastic uh, orchestral stuff you get nowadays. Was that that must have been a big influence on you then? Soundtracks in general. Yeah, um, I've never been a fan of the incidental music in New Who, but I still return to the, you know, the Roger Lynn, Peter Howell, all, all the old composers of the, the sort of 70s and 80s, who particularly ones that started getting more electronic from the end of the 70s. Um, and some of that material is really great in its own right. Um, but yeah, when I was a kid, uh, my friends, you know, they'd be listening to Duran Duran or whatever was in the charts. And me, I was listening to... Sergeant Peppers on LP, um, Jean-Michel Jarre, and Doctor Who the Music. <laughs> My small record collection, aged eight or nine, generally included various LPs from the BBC uh, <laughs> Records um, label. So you'd got 
LPs of the sound effects, the theme tunes, the uh, incidental music. Um, and later when I got into computer games, I'd be taping computer game music from the games. Mm. Um, I, I eventually discovered radio and real music <laughs> later on. But uh, um, yeah, at, at a time when everyone else was listening to whatever was floating around in the charts, I was quite content to listen to all this, this weird stuff. Um, and there's no denying that that's been an influence on, on my own work. Something I, I wanted to ask you, actually, you, you have um, synesthesia. Um, I, I'll ask you a question about that, actually, uh, in a moment. But first, could you define that for people? It's a, it's a difficult one to sum up. I mean, it seems to be much more commonly talked about these days. Um, and there's more information, obviously, on, online about it than there used to be. But it's, it's essentially, it's a, I don't want to call it a condition, because it isn't really. It's a, it's a union of the senses in its most basic terms. It's the association of sounds, colours, textures. Um, for example, all my days of the week I have colour associated to each one. Mm. Different sounds in my mind's eye have different colours. Um, different words have different colours or shapes or forms. It's a very abstract concept, um, but it's, it's always there. And I just assumed for years that everybody had the same thing until I, there was a, a Peter Gabriel CD-ROM game in the 90s called Eve, which was kind of a part game and then part academic experience where you met different experts talking about different uh, psychological fields, and one of them was synesthesia. And I thought, that's that thing, mm. but it's got an egg. So that was fascinating to realize that it actually was something that not everybody experiences. Um, and the BBC did a, a fantastic edition of Horizon, I think back in 2004, all about it, which my version of it is exceptionally mild compared to some people. You know, I remember there was one person that there was one particular word that he, he just, if anybody said it, he would want to be violently sick. Um, or somebody else that was a certain word gave them the sensation of smooth marble passing over their hands. So it's, it's very... It's all about the senses, really, and very about textures, colours. I think, for me, the best example I can give you, um, if, if you're unfamiliar with it or you don't experience it, is do you remember the very first version of iTunes? Mm. Or any version of iTunes actually still has it. There's the visualiser. Yeah. But the version that came with the first iTunes, which you can still view, is the, probably the closest thing I've seen on a screen to what I see in my head when I hear music. It's this ever-evolving sort of changing form and colour. Um, when I first saw that, I thought, wow, whoever, whoever came up with that has obviously experienced anaesthesia. And it's a part of my creative process as well. Not that it's going to be evident in the end result, but for me, when I'm doing it, I'll be looking for like a green sound or some red drums or whatever. It makes sense to me at the time. And, and of course, that's, that was remnants from a lost time. You were looking for green music, weren't you? Which um, it has produced its own artwork as well that stands alone and separate from it. Or, can, you know, the two pieces, I love the fact that it's, it can be two separate pieces. It's a piece of music. There's also an artwork series or it's a combination of the two, which is not really a union you get all that often. It's kind of like, I suppose it's it's some it's like a really 
mm, broken down version of music videos. Yes. <laughs> you know, with a company, it's an accompanying visual, except this is at its most core elements, which I, I find a, a really cool, um, just a cool aspect of the whole whole piece. Um, with this synesthesia, I wanted to ask as well, while you were watching Doctor Who and things like that, music triggers it for you. Um, mm -hmm. When you're watching television, Doctor Who, for example, does it go off then? And therefore, does it, for lack of a better word, colour your interpretation of the TV show? Um, I don't think it's, I don't think so. Not to that degree. Yeah. Um, I think these days, if I hear some music in something, I'm, I'm more about thinking, oh, there's an idea in there that I can recycle or, you know, there's something that sparks some inspiration somewhere along the way. But then again, if I'm hearing music in something, I'll be hearing it in whatever colour my mind interprets it in anyway. So it's all it's all connected. <laughs> You've mentioned it's part of your creative process. Um, where does the idea come from? If you're going to do, I'm, I'm interested where the germ, the seed starts. If you're going to do a project, which is visual and audio, which component comes first and which component feeds the other one? I think the visuals always come first, probably because I've worked for over 20 years as a professional graphic designer. So I think, you know, I'm a fine artist at heart. I think in pictures. So, you know, I'll be, I'll be taking a client brief and they'll be describing what they want and I'm instantly seeing something like what I could do for them. So I think that's the way my, my brain tends to operate. So I think there's always an aspect of the, the, the visual side comes first, but from that, there may all, always be, you know, it leads, one leads into the other. Because I've always described the kind of artwork that I do, you know, that's working with colours and forms, and music is working with sounds, but the actual principle feels the same, it's just a different medium. So which uh how far down the road do you get with the visuals before the music starts to come when i make music i like to start because i make instrumental mm -hmm. material um it's not uh, <clears throat> it's not driven by lyrics but i do always like to have a concept the concept is usually the starting point and from that i like to get titles or potential titles and i generally work backwards from the titles but i if I can't, if I don't have an image in my mind of what the album cover should be like or any artwork that's going to go with it, I find that quite frustrating. I, I like to envisage it as a finished package from the outset. So not, the cover is generally, well, I wouldn't say the last thing that I do, but nor is it the first. It tends to, there'll be a succession of ideas that I'll, I'll work through and then probably halfway through a project, I'll put something together and, uh, and see what I can come up with from there. Has your synesthesia influenced your love of sci-fi because it's can be you know the the alteration of perception is often something that's explored within sci-fi um and i can see definite visual links between your uh, synesthesia art which is very abstract and uh, your science fiction art which has similar color palettes or uh, transitions between colors and I'm thinking particularly of the giant spaceship uh, that's some kind of transporter where there's a crowd of people uh, around a small figure, as, as mentioned, uh, silhouetted on horseback looking at these enormous artifacts. Um, so 
where, for example, would that come from? Where, because it's, it, I, 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 it's obviously hard to imagine suddenly going. I think I'll draw some giant pipes with someone on a horse looking at them. Or... Um, well, the I was invited to join the initiative for Instellar Studies back in 2012 after it was formed. Um, again, thanks to David Hardy, who was one of their honorary artists. Um, Kelvin Long, the founder, he was very keen to engage people via the sort of creative arts. So he was getting a roster of writers, poets, artists together. Um, I mean, I, I lend my artwork to them, but primarily I was brought on, on board as honorary musician. Mm -hmm. And I've released um, four or five albums in association with them. So those are the space travel themed albums because uh, I4IS, as they are known, is all about developing tomorrow's technology to enable us to have interstellar travel. Um, so my remit was basically taking their sort of mission statement and seeing how I could shape albums from them. Which given that I've always had a sort of a, an association with space and electronic or instrumental music, as many people have, it was an ideal scenario to sort of make, make those albums. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of concept album that I think I'm, I'm still striving to make. Every one I do, I think, yep, that's good. And then the next time, I think I've done a better job. So it, you know, it goes on. Mm. But it's also it's also a concept that's uh, pretty endless. You can have a, a lot of fun uh, with the themes. I think for the, the last album that I, I made in association with the initiative was called Infinity of Space. Sure. And there was one particular track. It's more of an industrial rock track. It doesn't sort of fit in your floaty space kind of music, mm -hmm. but the idea behind that, the track was called Construct, and it was about imagining, you know, you're flying a ship, and all of a sudden you come across in the middle of space an enormous starship that's half-constructed, just floating there. Uh -huh. So I was trying to make a soundtrack to imagine what would happen when you're flying past this enormous sort of framework of a ship that's being built by robots or, or whatever. That is so I think, ridiculously cool. <laughs> I think that it was a difficult track to make as well. I can imagine, yeah. It's, it's quite a complex thing to convey because it's not just love or anger. It's a giant half-built spaceship that you are doing a flyby of that's being constructed by possibly robots or via some other means, which is like, especially when you're not, you know, singing. Uh, about it like yeah, I'll spare everybody that what sorry I'll spare everybody that <laughs> yes but to be able to convey that with, without words is amazing um I, I was originally drawn to not normal you know outside of the mainstream music I'm a heavy metal man myself uh because it does cover science fiction and fantasy concepts and I originally was like I'm bored of hearing songs about love or heartbreak or other states of love on the radio right here this is a song about dragons which is infinitely <laughs> cooler or i discover Absolutely. bands like helion prime which is about aliens which is so much more interesting to listen to so i can i can totally um i, I can i can see how much fun it must be for you to be able to play with these concepts under a mandate Absolutely. as well 
Well, that, that's partly why I like to start a piece of music with a title. Mm -hmm. If I can get a title that sort of sets the scene, then that's all the listener needs. I don't need lyrics to describe that. It's just some of the titles, I mean, construct could be anything, mm -hmm. but uh, I think, you know, if, if you're listening to it and you've got the main theme in mind, then it should just fall into place. Yeah. So the, the, the pieces are all generally driven driven by titles, and then from that you can interpret it how you wish. I think that's also part of the fun, is I've got my idea, but somebody else might listen to a piece and have a completely different take on it. Sure. Yeah, it's very much like uh, Roland. I'm a big subscriber to the like art theory of Roland Barthes, who created the idea of death of an author, in which once the author has given birth to his art or her art, it's nothing to do with the author in a way. And the, the reader, he was a, a literary critic, but it applies to all kinds of artwork. The, the, the audience of the art has equal say in what that art means, just as much as yeah. the artist does. And I think that's really cool with what you're doing, with just the con, you know, the word construct or something. And it could be, to some, it might mean a lumbering robot walking across a landscape. To you, it's a a spaceship being built. It, it could be absolutely anything, which is, I think, the best part of art, to be able to say, I think it's this, and be absolutely right and have mm. just as much right as the author or artist behind that artwork. Yeah, no, I mean, one of the fun things about exhibiting at the science fiction conventions is, I mean, when I first started back in 2012, I was terrified. And I thought, I'm not, I'm not great in that sort of scenario. And uh, then I thought, oh, God, people are going to look at my work. It's like moment of terror setting. <laughs> oh, God, they might want to ask me questions about it. But, I've got, you know, I've got used to it, having done it every year for quite a while now. And that's part, it's become part of the fun. Sometimes, you know, you'll be, somebody will be looking at some work or perhaps with a friend and commenting on it, not knowing that I'm the artist and I'm right next to ah. it. So you, you can hear some interesting comments interesting sometimes i was going to say from, i hope no one time to time <laughs> i think yeah when people interpret things in a totally different way they think oh well i'm not going to correct them but that's really interesting how they've perceived it mm -hmm. um and it's i suppose it's the same with music i mean I'm, I'm not on a label i'm completely independent uh which also accounts for how i've managed to create so much stuff in a relatively short space of time um, I work on a music album like I'd work on a piece of artwork. I'd do it to the best I can get it done myself and then move on to the next, put it out there. I publish the music via Bandcamp, which is a great platform for artists like myself. Uh, but I remember being very hesitant at doing that. The, so I didn't start putting my music out there for people to actually buy until uh, 2012 and uh, it was an experiment I thought I've done I've, I had a few years away from doing any music and then got back into it and I felt I'd improved somehow mm -hmm. um, and I thought you know this to my ears I thought this is the sort of thing that I would buy so if, if I'm fired up and really into what I'm doing surely other people will be mm -hmm. um, so I thought, as a bit of an experiment, let's put it out there. And uh, people bought it. Um, quite, you know, it sold pretty well as well for a sort of obscure, little-known 
release as it, as it was, and that was uh, an album called Inferno. Um, and that really gave me the incentive. I thought, I can, I can do this, I can do this better, I can do more of it. Mm. So that sort of was the driving force from there on. But then I thought, yeah, you know, you put it out there and then people people buy it and, or stream it and uh, they can interpret it as they wish. Sure. Some some people leave reviews, which is nice. So, And again, in those reviews, they make, make comments that are totally from a different place to what I was thinking. But, uh, well, that's their right as a, as a as a consumer, as a listener, as a fan. Because sure. it would be... It'd be very boring if everybody always agreed on everything and understood things the same way. There'd be no conversation left anyway. So I think, and the same, I used to try and, I had a separate website for my art and a separate website for the music. And eventually I thought, oh, this is ridiculous. It's all the same thing to me. Mm -hmm. It's just different creative mediums. So there's always a crossover with my art and music. Sometimes I'll make a piece of music with a title, but I'll then go on to illustrate or vice versa one inspires the other um so where can we uh where can we give you some of our money we would like to, we the audience would love to support your independent art and visions where where can we give you some dosh and receive some of your artwork please be it audio or visual well all of my music is available via the lightdreams.bandcamp.com and uh on my lightdream.net website is mainly the home for my artwork where covers can be commissioned, but I can also uh, produce prints and that sort of thing. Excellent. Uh, so, yeah, there's all means of contact and, uh, and that sort of thing online. And can we find you on any social media? Yep, I'm on Twitter and Facebook, and I recently gave Instagram a trial. I'm still sort of working it out, but I primarily use Twitter. I think it has a larger audience reach. I'm at The Light Dreams, and uh, anybody who searches for my name or The Light Dreams on Facebook will find... I've got a personal account, but I use that for personal stuff. Um, all my art and music goes on, uh, kind of put, goes on a public page. Uh, and I will put links to your socials and your websites in the show notes for today's show as well. Super. Thank you uh, very, very much uh, for talking to me, Alex. It's been very enjoyable. Well, thank you. It's been fun to run. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry if we've gone a bit long, but as soon as I saw a shelf full of Daleks, I thought, I'm going to enjoy talking to this person. Pleasure.
Those songs you heard surrounding Sonic Space were Decay and Construct, and you can find them by searching for the Light Dreams on Bandcamp. This is practically a radio show now, isn't it? I feel like I'm doing my radio show, except with less guitar solos and Satans. Next, we're going to listen to the first human male narrator since I performed on the pilot episode, with Jonathan Whiteside bringing a delightfully stage-actorly performance to Richmond A. Clement's arguably shocking short tale, Time Machine Story. Time Machine Story by Richard A. Clements. I admit it. Building the time machine was a mistake. I know that now. But at the time, at the time it had seemed like such a good idea. And when I had that idea, sitting there in the plane, looking out of the window, I couldn't wait to build it. It had just come to me. I looked down at the city streets, crisscrossing like the lines on a circuit board. The cars and the people were pulses of information, moving from point to point on the board. It was all so clear. So I built the circuit board I had seen in the street plan and constructed a time machine around it. And it worked. So, now you've built a time machine, an honest-to-goodness working time machine. You've got some pretty major questions that you've got to ask yourself, like where, or rather when, would you go? First moon landing? What about the first man on Mars? Woodstock? Gettysburg? Nuremberg? No. If you are anything at all like me, you'll just stick to the classics. The birth of Christ, dinosaurs, the rumble in the jungle. What can I tell you about these things? I stepped into the time machine and back 60 million years. It was like stepping out of your car in the middle of a safari park. You know that bit in Jurassic Park? The bit where that Australian guy, I can't remember his name, the guy in that hat, he looks down at a lake and all the different dinosaurs are drinking there. It was like that, only I was in the middle of it. There were so many of them, thousands of animals the size of houses were lumbering around me. And the noise, the smell, it was like the stench of an elephant house in a zoo only multiplied a thousand times. But the air was clean, free from any hint of man's interference, so clean that you could smell it beneath the animal musk. You know what comes next, don't you? Yeah, they started dying. That was my fault, probably some virus or germ I carried along with me. What did I just say about man's interference? But hey, if I hadn't, then we wouldn't be here. I thought long and hard about my next trip. I wanted to do something really useful to balance out the whole destroying an ecosystem thing. So, I finally decided on a quick jaunt into the future. The future, much as you would expect, flying cars, giant insular city communities constructed in the middle of a weather in turmoil and raised sea levels on a planet injured and scarred by brutal conflict. Still, on the bright side, they have cool spaceships, moon bases, and colonies on Mars. No aliens, unfortunately. 
but I probably hadn't gone far enough forward to meet any. Anyway, back to the point. I found what I went to the future for and brought it back with me. What had I gone looking for? The AIDS vaccine. I decided to take it back to the early 20th century and nip the disease in the bud. Do you know what a vaccine is? Put into simple terms, it is a small amount of the actual virus, enough to bolster the body's immune system. How was I to know that introducing a vaccine to a virus that did not yet exist would cause so much bother? Look, I'm sorry, but at least we know there'll be a cure in the end, eh? At this point, you would be telling yourself that this time travel thing is a bad idea. Meddling with things that shouldn't be meddled with, that sort of thing. Not me. I put it down to bad luck. And I figured third time lucky was the rule. Bad luck. Maybe I should have said uh, bad timing. For a while after that, things got better. Though it would be pointless for me to tell you what I achieved. When you think of it, any war I may have stopped, any disaster averted, or assassination I foiled would, by definition, never have happened. So you wouldn't have heard of it. No, I'm not stupid. I am now very wealthy after my many successful investments, as well as a sizable lottery jackpot. Okay, a few sizable lottery jackpots. Those I figured as payment for my many good deeds. Maybe it was karma, but after the lottery wins, stuff uh, started to go wrong. I introduced Kurt Cobain to Courtney Love, John to Yoko, John to Ringo, Chaz to Dave, Jack to Jackie, and to Marilyn, and a few others besides. I told Barbara Cartland she looked good in pink. What? The Kennedy assassination? Yeah, I know who did it, but trust me, you do not want to know. You can see me in that film, by the way. I'm standing behind the guy with the umbrella. But that's only the half of it. How do you live with the knowledge that you helped to split up the Beatles? Or worse, helped Wings stay together for an extra year? How can a man come back from that? Can he redeem himself after suggesting to Abraham Lincoln that he needed a night out at the theatre? After too many such incidents, I realised that my jaunts back and forth were causing more problems than they were solving. Yes, I tried to put it right, went back to a few of my mistakes, but I ended up making them worse. That's where the Kennedy thing comes in. The book depository window and the grassy knoll. Those were both me. What a mess. Kennedy, Lincoln, AIDS, Archduke, Ferdinand, and more. I killed a lot of people trying to do the right thing. But how do I put all of that right? It took me a while. But eventually, I arrived at the obvious answer. The solution was to stop myself before I built the thing. But the application. When was the best time to stop myself? I remember the exact moment that I had the idea. It seemed like yesterday. It seemed like a thousand years ago. It was probably both. How do I stop myself? I remember the exact moment. Looking down on the circuit board city, New York, below me on September the 11th, 
How do I stop myself? Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan Watson. See what I meant about a stage actorly performance as opposed to a straight like audiobook narration style performance. I think it works really well when a story has a hefty ending like that that punches you right in the thorax. Overtech Knoll uh, has managed to send over a sneaky little last minute communique about the fact that Shoreline of Infinity issue 14 is now available. We've got the following talented wordsmiths in it. Thomas Broderick. I say we, we've got. They, I have nothing to do with the magazine. I just sit in this, literally sit in a padded room talking to myself. It's literally, it's acoustic foam, but you know, it, it, do, it can double up in my worst moments. My most, fr- most frustrated times in here. Anyway, Thomas Broderick, Rhiannon Grist, Kat Hellison, Scotland's very own Grandmaster of SF, Ken McLeod, Andrew Reichard, Neil Williamson, and of note, uh, Noel would like to say that the uh, the title of Cat Hellison's story is particularly delightful. I have to agree with him. The title of the story is Oh Baby Teeth Johnny with Your Radiant Grin, Let's Unroll On Moonlight and Gin. That's a hell of a title. Good gracious. The issue also includes the stories from the winner and runners-up or runner-ups of our flash fiction competition based on the theme of the moon, the runners-up being Emma Levin, Alyssa Eccles, I love the name Alyssa, uh, Eris, Eris Young, oh, Eris is coming up on the podcast as an interviewee, and the winning, st- unless it's the complete, I mean, I, it might be someone else called Eris Young, in which case I, I've made a terrible faux pas. And the winning story, La Loba, is by Vicky Jarrett. We've also got the fantastically named Ruth E.J. Booth, Noise and Sparks column, uh, Lost Part 1, Further North, inspired by her recent visit to a conference way, way up in Norway. And Ruth is actually shortlisted for the prestigious British Science Fiction Association Award for Best Nonfiction of 2018. Chris Kelso takes on SF Caledonia in this issue. He explores the work of Scotland's quiet man of SF, which is meant as a compliment, I'm told, Neil Williamson, a well-loved writer who deserves far more recognition than he receives. Mark Toner's Beachcomber comic takes on the Twilight Zone world of the White Van Man. And Sam Dolan, our energetic book reviews editor, has worked our poor reviewers night and day. And as she says herself, we've tackled entire trilogies, sagas and anthologies and selected a beautiful bushel to share with you. Is it worth starting that 3000 page trilogy? If it involves space marines, yes. Buy issue 14 and find out. I don't know if they're reviewing anything from the Black Library, by the way. That's just my preference of military science fiction. Pippa Goldschmidt looks at science and science fiction as we prepare for our event horizon as part of Edinburgh International Science Festival, which is uh, on the... What There's been a mis- mistype here, or unless this is a new date I'm unaware of, Noel. 
on the 114th of April. I, I, better, I better go on the website. Join me. Join me on an internet journey right now. It's a live tutorial. Type in Edinburgh. Edinburgh. This is a new keyboard. I cannot. I don't. My fingers aren't used to where the keys are. Edinburgh International Science Festival. Or, I mean, you can Google it. Other search engines are available. But you, you're not going to use them, are you? Google it. That's why that one's in the dictionary. Or go to sciencefestival.co.uk. Presumptuous. Uh, saying it's the science festival go to um the uh the little magnifying glass top right type in sure sure bloody keyboard sure where's the e sure there's a microphone in the way sure light line being very slow as well to be fair all right, okay. To boldly go, Shoreline of Infinity's Event Horizon, Thursday the 11th of April. There you are. With a panel including science fiction writer Ken McLeod and astrophysicist Dr. Jarita Holbrook. There we go. That I've done, I've done that job now. I hope you enjoyed that internet odyssey. Um, Shoreline of Infinity issue 14 is available via the Shoreline of Infinity website in paperback, EPUB, Kindle, and PDF versions. I've tried to get an EPUB version, not not the not Shoreline of Infinity, working on my Kindle, and it it it's a nightmare. So I'm very glad that there's a Kindle version out there, especially for Kindle. Uh, also available from your favourite bookshop, unless it's a bad bookshop, in which case, get a better bookshop, and let that be your new favourite bookshop. Anyway, that's what's coming in the award-winning Shoreline of Infinity Science Fiction magazine to give it its Sunday name. Thank you very much for the bulletin, Overtect Knoll. I'm going to leave you now with a piece of music. Guess what? It's Alex Storer. It's a good job he's excellent, isn't it? It's a very good job he's excellent. I wouldn't play rubbish music on, on, on this show, to be fair, though. I am a connoisseur. Um, if you do have any science fiction music, actually, that you you want to send me to be played, get in contact with me on Twitter at RJ Bailey or email soundwave at shorelineofinfinity.com or me personally, RJ Bailey at shorelineofinfinity.com. If it's rubbish, I will not play it. I promise you that, my friends. You are competing against some massive record labels now who have agreed to work with us. We had Epica on the first show, for heaven's sake. You know, big bands, big stuff. Um, so I'm going to leave you with Alex Storer. It makes absolute sense for us to leave with the full version, finally, of what you may think of as the Shoreline of Infinity opening theme. This is, in actuality, from the album Prototype, Vanguard. Until next time. I shall see you in the sound wave.
Soundwave was written and hosted by director Overtech Verbistect Loquinist RJ Bailey and co-produced by RJ Bailey and Overtech Noel Chidwick. All music, both incidental and featured, is by Tunetect Alex Storer. Story and poem curated by Verbis Curate Vox Texts, Debbie Cannon and Jonathan Whiteside. Back in Time, written by Jane Yolen, narrated by Voxtect, Danielle Farrow. Sonic Space, produced and presented by R.J. Bailey. Time Machine Story, written by Richmond A. Clements, narrated by Jonathan Whiteside.